Hi, everyone. Welcome to DevCast. I'm John Janik, the Chief Technologist at Dev Technology Group. And boy, have we got an amazing talent and speaker and guest here today to share some ideas on disruptive tech and people and talent. I am so pleased to welcome Colonel Kristen Sailing, the Director of the CG's Innovation Cell for the Human Resources Command at the U.S. Army. Colonel Sailing, welcome. Can I call you Kristen? Is that okay? Sure. I go by Kristen or Chris. And John, it's great to be here. I'm really happy to talk about this subject. So I'm excited. I am too. I think this is going to be a great conversation. You know, you and I were talking a little bit before we started recording, and you have just been doing such amazing things inside the U.S. Army for our soldiers, for their families, understanding what a whole person looks like and how to activate that. And to get to that kind of perspective, you have to have a story. I thought we could start with a little bit of context. How did you get to where you're at? How did you get to be this innovator and passionate speaker of all things truth to power, right? And how do we imagine and think about that? Now, that's awesome. I'm going to try to distill that into a short blurb because there are a lot of very happy accidents that led me to this. And this is right up my alley because I'm a complexity scientist by background. I love chaos mathematics. I love agent-based models. I love emergent behaviors. So I've seen a lot of what's happened in talent management kind of as an emergent behavior. So that's kind of a weird place to start. I made the transition to become an Army Operations Research and Systems Analyst from being a combat engineer in 2012, 2013. And that's really kind of where things kick off. I spent my first tour as an ORSA at Indopaycom doing what you would consider kind of the polar opposite of some of the work I do right now. I was doing uh, counterterrorism analysis. I was doing theater security cooperation analysis, allies and partners cooperation, sentiment analysis. That was where I spent most of my time. And then following that, my branch decided they were going to send me to the G1. It wasn't on my radar. It wasn't something I particularly planned on. I was like, what am I going to do here? I'm moving from a very theater-focused, very strategic-focused command to the man train and equip side of the army. And I came in having built a bunch of different data systems for Indopaycom and done a bunch of analysis there to a system where we were largely using just SQL extracts and Excel spreadsheets, a suite of Excel spreadsheets to do the work. It's like, I don't know how much of this I can do. We've got to build some data sets. I got to have something I can work with to do more than just kind of the, the aggregate forecast because we really just needed to know how many people by grade and MOS that we had and were projected to have in the army in order to feed accession projections, promotion projections, and budget projections. So I started working with the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Manpower and Reserve Affairs on building the Human Capital Big Data Program, along with the Army Analytics Group. So we have a great organization out in Monterey, the Research Facilitation Lab, that now houses one of the largest data repositories on all things people for the entire DOD. So we have all the service components in that data set. And from there, we started looking at what kind of questions we needed to answer. What kind of things did our senior leader need to know about our force to manage it better? In those discussions, I got in touch with General McGee, who at the time was running the Army Talent Management Task Force. You know, we worked next door to them when I was still in the G1. I was kind of peripherally aware of what they were doing and ended up listening to one of his pitches. And was just like, okay, I need to talk to this guy because I need to tell him how we can use some of this data we put together how we can provide some better analysis, how we can you know, support some of the things that the task force is doing because they didn't have at the time a very robust data team. They had a couple folks on there, but they weren't using the kind of things we were putting together in HCBD. From that, everything just kind of took off. 
I got pulled over into the Talent Management Task Force. I was still working with the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Manpower and Reserve Affairs. We started building some fairly complex analytic tools in order to support marketplace decisions that people were now being asked to make, hiring decisions, to do predictive retention modeling down to the individual level so that we could look at both offering and testing targeted retention incentives. And I've just been building things for the Army ever since. So I kind of got lucky during COVID, I ran into a number of different problems with childcare, with work, with work-life balance. In my particular case, when COVID hit, I was working both for talent management and I was beginning to step in as the acting director for the new people analytics office we stood up in the ASA MNRA. My boss at the time had been pulled up to be the deputy director of the Jake and we didn't have a backfill. So my schedule was insane. Absolutely nuts. My husband ended up having to quit his job because our daycare closed. So he was taking care of our, our very young son full time. And in DC, that just didn't make sense. I was trying to juggle a huge job, single paycheck, you know, trying to take care of family. We needed some help. I ended up putting in my retirement paperwork. I was going to uh, leave and go take a job in industry, heading down to Florida. But you know, the G1 and General McGee and my former boss all kind of stepped in and said, hey, you know, let, let, let's talk about this. You've got kind of a unique skill set. You've got a unique policy experience, et cetera. It was, again, kind of coming back to those happy accidents. What can we do to incentivize you to stick around a little bit longer to stand up some more of these programs? I really started thinking about that in terms of what we learned about of retention, because I've been doing all the retention modeling. I've been doing some retention incentive work. We help talent management and the research facilitation lab activate and launch the Department of the Army Career Engagement Survey, or DACES. And we were seeing a lot of problems coming in. The principal problem that was driving people out was op-tempo. That always ends up being a critical factor. But the second, and it has been for the couple of years running, is support to spouses, support to spouse careers. And I was sitting there going, okay, if I can figure out a solution that works for me and for my husband in our situation, and if we can turn that into a pilot that'll help the Army answer this question, Let's figure that out. Let's get after that. So after really chewing on what those solutions could be, I went into my boss's office and I said, okay, you know, we're working in COVID conditions right now. I'm in the office maybe once or twice a month. Do you care where I work from when I'm not in the office? Can we try a remote work pilot? So he chewed on it for a little bit and said, okay, let's go. So we went and talked to the G1. We talked to the, the chief of staff. We talked to all the necessary folks and they gave us the go ahead. So May of 21, we launched a pilot. We had five of us who were stationed remotely. I got moved down to Florida. And other than a lot of TDY, I've been working there ever since. So that's given me a little bit of a, I think, a unique perspective on both being able to experiment and try things that the Army has allowed me to do. Again, without the leadership I've had with General McGee, General Drew, and now General Drew again at HRC. That's that's an amazing story. Yeah. <laughs> There's so much to draw out of that, right? I think I want to start with this idea because, you know, if you've been watching the federal CDO council, a mm -hmm. lot of the conversations around data, and I think we'll get into this as we kind of talk about where you're seeing emerging and disruptive tech in the people and talent space, but your background, your history is about data, right? I have this thing when I'm talking with folks who are looking at IT or going into cybersecurity, even some of our developers, I'm like, learn the basics of how computers work. Because if you understand how computers work, you'll understand how to make them work, right? And I think the same is true of AI. If you understand data, how mm -hmm. data works, how data constructs work, what, why and how that data is important, 
you'll understand what and how and why AI works. And so it's really interesting to me to hear you talk about your story of really talking about coming from a, a almost like a transactional background. A lot of HR data is very transactional in nature. And you saw the shortcomings in that transactional data and you started asking the questions of how do we get more value out of these transactional data sets and how do we make that look and feel different? Exactly. And then the story about you being the guinea pig for the pilot is amazing. I want to get back to that too, because I think a lot of federal agencies, right? We keep talking about the need for innovation, the pace of innovation and innovating at speed, right? Oftentimes we find we're our own worst enemy in that regard because we don't really focus on what are the autonomy, mastery, purpose factors to allow people to exceed and make some of those decisions or communicate and collaborate effectively to get to those decisions themselves. So we throw in a lot out there. I just want to just vet that with you, like that data background. Let's start with the data background and that transition. Does that sound right to you? Did that really help kind of solidify where you kind of went in your trajectory? It did. And it's really kind of not just my trajectory, but the talent management trajectory. It took us a while to really kind of put a framework around it. We were just doing so many things and piloting so many things. But what really ended up happening between when we really started our data initiatives in 2019 for talent management, when we started the Human Capital Big Data Program in 2016, we really started moving from just how many of what type interchangeable cogs, the industrial management model, to who. So let's, instead of counting how many, let's take a deeper look at the motivation, the certification, the morale, the behaviors, the grade, the experiences, technology proficiency is one that we're still trying to figure out different types of assessments for. But we wanted to see a larger data picture to fill in the gaps of what we knew about these people so that when we started having emerging requirements, either in new technology specialties coming into the Army, as you're seeing with Army Software Factory, or in just kind of places where we need to shore up gaps, where we have particular shortages, we didn't have a way of building the picture of what the closest skill set was so we could move people laterally. So we've been trying to figure out different ways to build that picture with our talent data. And then you see just a whole host of initiatives coming out of the Army People Enterprise, figuring out how to either collect more data for that or how to leverage that data. And how do you think about that in terms of activating? So you really kind of focused on activating the individual from the organizational perspective. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming you're also thinking about that the opposite way as well. How do you give insights to the individual on how they provide value to the organization, right? Are you right. still looking at that or how do you think about that? We are. That's what our Army Assessment Program has been getting after for the most part. You've seen publicized probably the Command Assessment Program. We have a number of other different assessments that are going to hit different types in officers' career. And we're developing for our enlisted corps as well. And in some cases for our civilians, helping people see a better picture of where they are, where their strengths and weaknesses are, and then introducing career mapping tools. We have one that we're developing for the active duty side of color career mapping and succession planning tool at the moment. We're working on coming up with a more condensed name for it. But what that is going to do ideally is pull in our personal data, give a person a good picture of where they sit now in terms of their current role and their capabilities and help them look into the future, help them look at jobs that will advance their career. They might not have looked at otherwise because they wouldn't have necessarily had the same picture of their skill sets. Or if they have a particular goal, if they want to follow a particular pathway, we can help them see what the gaps are between them and that goal and ideally help them select 
positions that will help them shore up those gaps, seek out career coaching, take assessments to verify or to validate some of their knowledge, skills, and behaviors that they need in order to get be a stronger match for that particular position or leverage any of the certification, continuing education, or even advanced civil schooling programs we have in order to build up their skill set more. Yeah, it sounds like a huge evolution from the career development plans and checklists of old, right? So we're, we're moving into the future. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, so as we're thinking about that and trying to use the data and trying to use the objectives of creating that value proposition between organization and individual. So the individual is getting value to the organization, the organization is getting value of, of the individual, and it's a reciprocal thing, right? It's a win-win versus somebody trying to like take advantage, and, and that's not the right word, but an unequal partnership, maybe that's the word I'm looking for. How do you think about the use of technology in that paradigm? Obviously, you have to use it. You've talked about the transition to data from transactional into much more data science and insight-based things. What sorts of technologies do you look at, right? So again, we're here to talk about disruptive and emerging tech and the need to accelerate the adoption of these things. When you're thinking about how do we get to this model where we're really transforming that organizational individual connectivity and that connectedness, what technology sets are you looking to, to say like, yeah, these are where we need to be focused. These are where we need to be pulling these into the people and talent conversations. And this is how we need to be thinking about it. So that's been, oh, it's been an evolution. It starts largely with capturing more of that transactional data and with eliminating as many keystrokes as possible. One of the things that we're trying to do with IPSA and with other programs is to get as many things linked into a authoritative database as possible so that we can say, all right, you're not going to fill out 10 million different portions of a form again. We already have your data. That way we cut down on errors. We get actions done more quickly. But for the talent side of things, what we really want to do is map all the various journeys. So it sounds you know, a little more touchy-feely than you expect the Army to do, but what we want to look at is the journey of an individual to a particular action and what kind of technology do we need to do to make that journey smoother, more error-free, happen and happen at the speed where action is needed. In the HR space, there's a lot of hidden gems. We don't necessarily need massive new technologies. We just need to figure out the ways to employ the things that are out there currently. My office focuses largely on figuring out what the best of breed is for OCR and for NLP. I mean, so much of what we do in the people space is text processing. So we need natural language processors and we need the capability to read a lot of documents. So we need optical character recognition. We need to be able to take that information that we scan in from documents, from records, from histories, from all the things that people upload in order to verify things in their file, take out the amount of things they have to do in order to turn that into actionable information, get our data engineers in there to make the data sets that we need in order to answer the Army's problems and develop analytics to leverage that data that could provide a better vision of the space to answer those problems. I want to add that bit of clarification there because a lot of people think we're, well, I don't say a lot of people, but every once in a while you start talking down that path and people think we're just going to drop some kind of a massive computer on all our data. It's going to give us all the answers, make all the decisions. That's not what it does. We know that artificial intelligence right now is more to augment processes augment our decision processes than it is to take things over. And we're trying to apply more robotic process automation than anything else. And to take the people out of the mix 
when it comes to data entry, when it comes to basic reviews, things that a computer can do, repetitive organizational processes, and then put the people where they're absolutely needed in different places of that process to do quality control, quality assurance, and to make the necessary decisions. So the president's management agenda, I think from, I think it's come up in a number of them over the years, but you know, they talk about shifting from low value to high value work. And, and you hear that theme consistently for people that really know the space, that know the technology. And the mandate is to do exactly that, right? We want to stop spending so much time keying data in all over again. We want to spend more time having conversations, having discussions around what pathways could look like. Where might you get more value out of a training curriculum or mm -hmm. even just a reading an article or reading a book, right? Those kinds of conversations are where we really get a tremendous amount of value. That requires a shift in the workforce as well, right? So how are you thinking about as these new technologies and tools are coming into play, how are you thinking about, well, now we have personnel officers across the entire workforce who really need to think about their role and their job differently than they have in previous years, or, or maybe not. What do you think about that? So my biggest partner in crime has been the Adjutant General for the Army, the 63rd Adjutant General, General Johnson. He is looking at exactly that for the AG Corps. What do we need to do in order to shift their professional military education and their continuing education to give them the analytic tools and the data tools they need in order to operate in this new environment? We're looking at that writ large for HRC with two new offices that we've developed. We have a, a technical recruiting team that we've put into play to fill the gaps in the organization with the right skill sets that we need for that particular time. And we have a workforce development team. We have just an absolutely huge amount of experience in HR management, Army processes, and Army policy, which is really hard to recreate. So as much as possible, I want to take that expertise and teach them how to use functional tools in order to make them more data savvy, more data literate. We have a couple of other programs that we've launched throughout the Army. We did this back when I was working with People Analytics. And at the time, my office was running the Army Data Workforce Talent Management Program. We partnered with Colonel Nick Clark, who's a professor up at West Point. He was doing an operational experience down at Fort Bragg. And we'd had a number of talks about what a intro to data course would look like for the Army. He had an opportunity to build one and test it when he was working down at Fort Bragg. And the demand went off the charts. He was all over the place. We had a whole bunch of volunteer instructors assisting him. My office, a couple of my teammates and I jumped into the fray and we went and taught the course. And we're now launching a train the trainer program for that course at West Point this summer. So data literacy has become a major topic in the Army. We're putting some of the final touches on an Army data literacy plan to hand off to the CIO's office so that we can get after more of that capability and a foundational understanding of how to write with, speak about, ask good critical questions of data, and to transform data into those critical actions. That's amazing. What a compelling story to really talk about how you were able to activate the entire workforce around a topic. Were you surprised by the uptake around this? Because data literacy is not considered a super topical. Oftentimes people think about data in different ways. How did that rate of response kind of sit with you? How did you feel about it? So I think surprised and jubilant would be words I would use. I was hoping that we would get a good foothold in the 18th Airborne Corps with what they've been doing in their, their data and AI transformation. That was not an issue. 
I was very happy with how much it caught on in other organizations. The military intelligence community in the Army has embraced it and propagated it. They've just released their data strategy, which includes that as a critical foundational piece. Uh, Chandra Donaldson over there is leading a lot of that effort, and she's just doing absolutely amazing work. That's phenomenal. Do you expect as we get more data literate and data active personnel inside the Army that there will be more intentional pressure for vendors and component providers to create open architecture and systems that really do encourage data mesh uh, approaches where the data isn't locked behind. So this has been a long, you know, and I'm sure you've seen it in your life, but long arcing conversation around data lock-in and the inability to move data out of certain pieces of equipment and sensors and that sort of thing. Do you think that getting after the data literacy component is going to help change that perspective and change those conversations? And if so, you know, what do you think that arc looks like as we continue to kind of march towards this vision of JATC2 and, and other kind of mm -hmm. highly interoperable environments? And John, I'm glad you asked that question because it's kind of a two-pronged issue. So yes, absolutely. I think that's the direction that we're growing and I think that's the direction we fundamentally need to go. We have this data, we need to be able to operationalize it. I think the army is, well, I think all the services are very much leaning in that direction. The people space, at least, we have some challenges with that. Not necessarily that we don't have the tools and the architecture to be able to do it. The biggest sticking point for us is, honestly, the regulations for the use of personnel data. You've seen a lot of it come up with acquisition. You know, is this IL-5? We have to ask these various questions. So we need more people. I have to give a shout out to Mike Carroll, who's my partner in crime in acquisition over at HRC. He's our acquisition procurement and contracting cell lead. So he's got a team of very data savvy folks working with us. And we're trying to figure out what other kind of capabilities we need to have in the mix who are data savvy. One of them that came up is a procurement law. So we have to have people who are savvy in the law, in procurement, and in data working on these problems. But coming back to the problem with personnel data, we have so many restrictions on the use of personnel data that kind of stem back to the Privacy Act. That goes into system of record notices, which when we have a system that collects data, we have to have it logged in the federal register and approved through, I don't know how many different steps that say, this is what the system is, this is the data it's using, this is the reason it was collected, et cetera. Tying back to all of that, we have to fundamentally change either how we write those system of record notices, how we define systems, or some of the language in the law itself in order to be able to create those structures or else the permissions just to be able to share data across systems, they're still going to be ponderous. We have worked on a number of different policies and a number of different automatic data sharing agreements to alleviate some of that. But in order to make this data move at the speed it needs to, we're going to need some help from Congress. So that's really interesting that you bring that up specifically, right? And I want to dig into that just a little bit. I realize it's not a technology issue, but oftentimes what we find are the policy and the regulatory structures are really what are the blockers in adopting these more aggressive, disruptive, emerging technology suites that really can be transformative. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about the Privacy Act, that's what, 74, right? So this is yeah. a time and place that predates all modern computing for the most part, right? I mean- Well, it's written for old Vax and BMX servers. <laughs> I mean, it's written for file cabinets almost. 
Yeah. So when we talk about like sharing and integrating and moving data and information and doing it in a safe, secure way, because I don't think anybody that talks about this stuff just wants this information flying around the Internet. Although, ironically enough, a commercial provider is more likely to lose your information than the government at this point in time. But I think that when we talk about these things, it is interesting to kind of talk about the regulatory and policy structures and how old they've become, because they are significant blockers in a lot of these more emerging things. And the Privacy Act is really interesting because it pertains to people and talent. But as you pointed out, it doesn't matter how advanced JADC2 is, you still have to have people that are making all of those things work. I don't see a point in time, in the near future at least, where we're ever going to take a human out of the loop, right? So people right. are still the core of this conversation. And if you're being held back by those policy and regulatory restrictions, does that actively impact? Do you tend to like flow around them when you're looking at data and technology problems? Is there a whiteboard somewhere where you just have a list of all the policy and regulatory things that are problematic? How do you think about that? How do you track them? So it really is a whole system approach. In order to get data and technology working in the way we want it to work, you have to have the people, the processes, the policy the platforms and the culture. So we can buy the platforms. Industry is very good at making those. We're getting better at procuring them, even though you know everybody kind of acknowledges that we need to streamline the pipelines there. Our enterprise cloud management agency has done some incredible things in that space. So again, I have to give out a shout to Paul Puckett and his crew over there, losing him from our talent set. It made a lot of us cry. So we've got the platforms. We're working on actually getting them into our system. The people, in order to have the right people, we have to attract them with the right problem set and let them actually work on it. I mean, the folks we have come in with data and digital talent are incredible, but they just want to work. So we really are trying to get the policies out of their way and our business processes. Whenever our business processes stymie them, that's when they're most likely to say, you know what, I really want to work on this problem. I really want to serve. I'm just sitting here twiddling my thumbs, answering email. I want to go, I'm going to go somewhere where I can actually solve problems and not sit around waiting for the army to get itself in gear. So it sounds like we do a lot of tech integration. We do, but we spend a majority of our time in probably in, in any innovation office, trying to work our way through the policies and the processes that block us from getting a solution to its potential. And how early in the process is your thinking through solving a problem? How often and early do you tend to see those? So in systems thinking, right, you're trying to map out all the nodes, trying to figure out all the relationships between them, right? You're trying to figure out, okay, how does this system interact and how are the different components all related to each other and how do I kind of start picking this thing apart? So how do you think about that in terms of like when something is truly emergent and disrupts the entire system versus trying to map out as much as you can from the beginning. Do you have a preference on the process as you're exploring it? Do you just tend to try and go in there and figure out what's happening? Or how do you think about it? So it's funny that you talked about the whiteboard and the nodes earlier, John, because that's exactly what I have. I have a whiteboard diagram. I actually started working on that with General Funk when I was working with Talent Management Task Force. We mapped out a 10-year evolution for talent management in a node diagram just to show how all of these different initiatives that we were launching related to each other and how they built on each other toward the CSA's goals for people and the 2030 plan at the time. I look at that, look at the interaction effects, look at where we kind of see the biggest stop. It's not quite a Gantt chart, but it's kind of similar to that concept. What are the activities that are 
slowing us down the most? How do we crash on that? How do we get a policy or a business process or a technology solution in there that's going to alleviate that? The part where we start getting into disruptive technologies is when we look at just how much of the system is going to get replaced. We've talked a lot through, probably heard General McGee talk about it a fair amount when he was at talent management, the 10% versus the 10 times change or the 10x change. Sometimes all you need is a 10% tweak to make things a little bit more efficient and to get those processes going. We can do those. But every once in a while, we see everything converging on one of these major nodes. And that one we know is going to have to be transformative. That's where we're going to need something that totally changes the way we do business, because the optimal way to solve that problem might have little to nothing to do with the way we're getting after that business problem right now. Interesting. So what are you thinking about in terms of what are your, and if you can't talk about it, that's fine too, but like, what are the two big nodes you mentioned from a technology stack perspective, OCR, NLP, but what are those two big nodes that they interact with that you see this completely transformative things are going to be fundamentally different going forward. And how often do you refresh that thinking? Because if you had asked me last year about AI before the open AI stuff, I would have said, yeah, it's, it's going to be transformative, but nobody's sure when. Now that the models, the LLMs are really out there and in the open and we're starting to work on it, I would tell you that's accelerated. That timeline is now accelerated because now that we've got public attention on it, there's going to be more resources and more focus and we're going to evolve faster. So how do you think about that? And when you're trying to do some of your people planning and trying to bring some of those nodes together? So I think the most transformative thing we've worked on is what General McConville mandated is flexible career paths. We had a conversation with him fairly early on when I was in talent management, I'd say this is like 2019, where he likened the idea of what we wanted to do with people after having been the G1, he saw just how much disruption we had between structure and personnel availability in the process to change and update all of those. He wanted us to start thinking about it like a flight plan. I mean, it kind of makes sense as an aviator, but you know, people need to get from one point to another in their careers. And some of them are going to get there nonstop. Some of them might need to take a couple layovers and they're going to pick up you know, some critical things along the way for each of those. So what would that look like? So started translating that into, instead of looking at a time-based, cohort-based personnel management system, what would we need to have in order to make a more flexible set of career paths, where maybe you get one particular position, come out of it with the experience necessary to move into another grade, or maybe it takes you two or three and you take a broadening experience in the meantime. If I get you to the necessary capabilities to move up, does it really matter if it takes three, five, seven years to do it? And then how do we go after helping people understand where we need the skill sets, what kind of things we want them to develop, and where those are going to be best utilized? That resulted in a number of different initiatives. One of them is the Army Talent Attribute Framework. We really needed a library to show us how all of our different characteristics interrelate because you can't go find a spacey library that has everything that we need in the Army. That's where we need to be a little bit more thinking in terms of Army Green than in industry because most of the libraries we were using for natural language processing, you could not put you know, combat engineer and sapper out there and have a clustering algorithm that would match them and said, yes, these are compatible skill sets, they go together. So the Army Talent Attribute Framework is going to be used to build that library. Again, natural language processing, we want to use that from duty descriptions, evaluations, all the other texts that we have out there on what is required at all these various positions to make a more robust data framework to say, this is what we require in these particular jobs, load it into the market, 
and load it into the career mapping and succession planning tool. As part of that, you know, assessments feed into that too, because it's additional data that we have on the individual and data that we have on our requirements when we can see who is successful in that area. Now, career mapping sounds like it's all based on the talent and the individual. There are two ways we look at that. One of them is the one-to-many relationship with a service member to many jobs, helping them figure out where their best fit is. If you flip it around, we have another part of the tool that looks at one position to many service members, and we want to make that available to unit leaders so they can see who's out there who might be the best fit for the job. And coming back into the policy side, you know, we have jobs coded in our requirements right now by grade and branch, grade and MLS. As people come along down the line, coming back to you know, what Jeremy McConville was talking about, those multiple stops, they might be coming from different places, but have the necessary skills to get to that the necessary you know, flight plan to get to that destination. So as we get farther up the grades, do we want to say position requirements become a little bit more immaterial? We want to be able to move flexibly in between branches and eventually going after the permeability concept that he was talking about. We want to be able to bring somebody in between components or through direct commission, through any of these other number of authorities we've been given, with the end state being that flexible career path where we get the right person for the right job at the right time, regardless of where we need to pull them from. That's an incredible vision. And I think it really does set a future path that's super interesting for a service that's up or out and competitive by nature. How do you feel about that with regards to the idea that, you know, for example, Army Cyber Command already direct commissions folks, right? So there's always this kind of tension between people who are in the ecosystem and people who are outside of the ecosystem. And as you said, the permeability between those two different demographics. How do you expect the technology and the approaches that you're talking about here to help empower the individual to understand and to know that like, hey... Just because we're bringing right talent in for the right place doesn't mean that we're taking opportunities away from folks inside the core or that we're providing other opportunities or having that real honest conversation of maybe there are areas because you've been in a position for so many years that you need to be thinking about in order to get to that next plateau. I think we owe it to our people and to the Army to be able to get the best talent in the right positions that we can get. As part of that, though, there is a development piece. So just because we're pulling in a, a particular skill set from outside, does it necessarily mean that we don't value our skill sets inside? We were going to offer those opportunities, again, for assessments and for career mapping, for them to see themselves and see where they need to progress according to the goals. It also gives us the opportunity as an Army to quantify what exactly it is we want to have our individuals possess. There are going to be some positions where it's pretty set where you get those skills. If you look at our tankers, there's not going to be a lot of opportunities to figure out how to fight or a squadron of tanks outside the army necessarily. Or, you know, people are creative. They could prove me wrong. But when you look at some of our other skill sets, we have to ask ourselves what part of that skill set has to be experience-based in the army. Where is the military essentiality piece of it? And the military essentiality piece for the position as well. You know, if we're going to pull somebody in, is there a reason that we need to pull them in via direct commission? Or is it you know, what we've been doing across the Army in different technical spaces where they have hired CTOs and CDOs as highly qualified experts out of industry to solve some of these problems? That's another option for us to be able to get talent. I mean, it really it gives us more options. It builds us a bigger talent bench overall. I think, if anything, we're not taking opportunities. We're providing more opportunities across a broader spectrum 
for people to find where they can best exercise their strengths. Yeah. And it gets back to that value proposition of as this happens, an individual within the army will be able to better understand how the army sees them transacting value within the system and how they can increase that in order to get to the next. I mean, frankly, from my perspective, I see it as a huge boon to the individual inside the organization because now you have a very real estimation of how do I get to that next level of promotion? Oftentimes, you know, we talk about systems for promotion, but it's always at the end of the day, a very opaque thing. I think one of the follow-on questions that I have related to that is that, and you know this, right? You're a systems thinker. All systems eventually are optimized. So how do you prevent somebody from trying to game the system when you start injecting all of this additional data and additional perspectives on creating kind of individual flight plans? Or is that part of the idea that you want people to interact in an optimized way within the system? So we have a lot of organizational psychologists who could answer the question from a better technical perspective. I talk to them often enough that I'm very curious about the people who try to game the system. If there is an assessment, I want to know who takes it you know, five, 10, 20 times trying to better their score and how much they improve. What does their learning curve look like from the first time they take an assessment to the next? I mean, do they actually figure out how to answer those questions better? You know, how are people taking and using the data? Again, complexity scientist, I'm looking for emergent behaviors in the system because those are always interesting. As far as gaming the system, there's always a little bit of risk when you give people information that they're going to take it and misuse it. But at the same time, I think the value proposition for giving people better information about where they sit and how they can use their talents and making it easier for folks to serve, I don't think we can do ourselves harm there. Yeah, in theory, as it becomes more observable, it will become obvious who is becoming an outlier, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's something we have to have conversations with the Army about routinely. And it's one of the reasons that I think a lot of us at HRC and in the human capital enterprise for the Army, that we are as outspoken about what we're doing as we can. We want people to understand what we're doing and why we're doing it and why it's important. Yeah, no, I think that this has that disruptive kind of transformative effect for the Army, and it always has been, right? So I think it's important... To, to give credit where credit is due. The U.S. military and the U.S. Army have been leading in this space for decades now, right? I mean, like we have really done tremendous amounts of investment and time and energy. What you're talking about and working on is not just the platforms and the technology, but really enabling the people to also be part of that conversation and to be fully participative in the system, which I think is just phenomenal. And I think you could argue in a lot of ways it should have started with that, right? <laughs> right. So I think that this is a really good place to kind of start wrapping it up. We've been all over the place. I want to thank you for that. This has been such an amazing conversation. What are the two things that are top of mind that you want to leave people with as actions or activators as they go into the rest of the day? So I think the the number one for me in anything has been, especially since I've been working on data 101, is the training aspect. I mean, I think we need to look at how we integrate all technologies and what the data literacy 101 version needs to look like for the other things that we need to have introduced into our ecosystem. Because I do think of it as that ecosystem where this piece of technology and the talent to run the technology need to operate. If they are not properly enabled by the surrounding elements that need to interface with them, then you end up siloing them. They're over in a vacuum. The great products they put together, if they can even put together products, if their platform has access and has the data it needs or has whatever else it needs to fuel it, if we don't have that interface with the rest of the ecosystem, 
then that great work is never translated into action. So we really have to think about the fundamental training on this technology that's given to the rest of the organization. I think the second piece that I'm thinking about is exactly that. It's the communication. It's how are we communicating with not just the people who have to use our technology and have to understand the direction we're going, but you know the other innovators, the ideas. I want to be able to capture a lot of those from out throughout the Army because we have some incredibly innovative people. We have people who have problem sets that need to be solved. We have people who are going to come up through the ranks and when we're all off you know, happily retired someplace and whether the army might think about letting me do that, there are going to be people who are going to pick up and who are going to take this army in great directions. So I think the more we're able to speak about what the army is doing, where it's going, what kind of problems it's trying to solve and reaching out for both problems and ideas throughout the system, the better off we're going to be. Sounds like it's an exciting time to be in the U.S. Army, to be leading in the U.S. Army, to be a part of such an amazing organization. Colonel Sailing, I want to thank you for your time today. Thanks for joining us. So many great insights you shared with us. Really appreciate everything you've brought. You are welcome to talk with me about anything you want, anytime you want. <laughs> We're always happy to host you here on DevCast. Yeah, I appreciate it, John. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about so many things that have really been passion projects for me. Yeah, this is fantastic. We'll have to get you back on again soon. Thanks, everyone. Talk again soon. And thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.